ready, so we need to get started. Get you all back to work in time. So just to recap, for those of you that have been out for a couple weeks or coming back or new or watching the video at home, which I found out people actually watch it, so that's good news. Uh, we're in our study of the book of Exodus. We're going through the book chapter by chapter because Exodus is the gospel for God's people. I've said it before, say it again, you cannot overstate how important Exodus is for the rest of the Bible. Exodus is the Jesus and the apostles and all the New Testament authors. It's their gospel. It's what they knew. It's what they celebrated as their identity. And sadly, it's something that most of us only know through Charlton Heston or the Prince of Egypt or that abomination of the movie that just came out by Ridley Scott. Uh, we, we barely understand the Exodus. We know it as a children's story, and that's it. So what we've been doing, and if you haven't been here for all of it, there's a camera right here because we record each week and put up on my YouTube channel, Disciple Dojo YouTube channel, and so you can follow along and catch yourself up with where we are in the text. But we do it because we need to reimmerse ourselves in the story of Israel if we want to make sense of the scriptures of Israel. Everything in the New Testament presupposes that you and I know these stories as our own. We saw last week, they are our own because we have been adopted into the family of Moses. We have been adopted into Israel through our faith in Israel's Messiah. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you worship Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, and these are your scriptures. These are your history of your people because you've been adopted into Christ Jesus, and that's where we stand. So we're going through Exodus. We're in chapter 14. This is an example we saw last week of where chapter breaks. Remember, chapters and verses are not original to the text, and sometimes they come at really dumb places. And this is an example where the medieval scribes who were breaking up the text decided to break up chapter 14 in a way that doesn't really flow with what's going on. Chapter 14, if we're going to break it up, should have started back up in chapter 13, verse 17, or somewhere around there. But we're, we're moving into the tail end of what's chapter 13 in our text. And it's the actual crossing, the actual exodus, uh, the, the consummation of the exodus. See, they have already left Egypt. They've already been freed by God, and Pharaoh let them go. But then we're going to see in this chapter, Pharaoh is an enemy who was defeated once and wants to reclaim what was once his. Wants to pursue and wants to reclaim the slaves that he once had. There's a reason that Pharaoh is the prototype of Satan in the New Testament. There's a reason that salvation is couched in Exodus imagery throughout the New Testament. Because like Pharaoh, Satan himself realizes when someone comes to faith that they have, he has been beaten and he has lost what was once his. And he desires for the rest of that person's life to reclaim what was once his slave. And there's a whole motif there. If you go on my website and give you the link, I wrote a paper on it in seminary, tracing that motif throughout the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation of sin as an enemy, as a captor, as a conqueror. And so that's where we are, chapter 14, um, verse, we're going to start, actually chapter 13, verse 20. It's where we ended last week in verse 19, I believe. So we're going to look at chapter 13, verse 20. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. 
By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. They're traveling. Imagine this now. There's, there's you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people, uh, not the 2 million that we talked about last week. If you missed that part, check the video. Um, but there's still enough to fill Bank of America Stadium. And they're traveling in the desert, and there's a, a, a giant pillar of cloud and fire leading them. Pillar of cloud and fire. Remember in, in scripture, cloud and fire equals God. We see that all over the place. We saw when God appeared to Abraham and made the covenant with him in Genesis 15. It's so important that all of you should have highlighted in your Bibles by now because I harp on it so much. Um, we'll see it when they get to Mount Sinai and God's going to descend and the whole top of the mountain is going to be enveloped in cloud and fire. This is an image. This is called a theophany. Biblical scholars call this a theophany, appearance of God. When God shows up, there's usually smoke and fire or both. And so this is what we have, God going ahead of his people in, in, in tangible, visible form. Um, it's going to be described as God, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, or the angel of the Lord. And it's all kind of the same thing from the perspective of the text. God himself is in their midst. And that's huge for the whole rest of the book of Exodus because that's going to be the theme. God dwelling among his people. So now he's started. He's leading them into battle, so to speak. Remember, he's brought them out as an army, an ironic army, because they're not going to fight a single battle. They aren't armed. They have no training. They're a nation of slaves. But God goes ahead of them. He is their warrior. He is their conquering king. So there should be nothing to fear. So the Lord said to Moses, chapter 14, verse 1, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Piharot between Migdal and the sea. They do encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal's Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Israel already knows that he is the Lord. The Egyptians are going to know that he is the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go. We've lost our services. We've, or excuse me, we've lost their services. We've lost our workforce. We've lost the people that we have enslaved for 400 years. We've lost the people that do our grunt work, that raise our animals, that make our bricks, that build our cities, that tend our lawns. No, they didn't say that, but that's the kind of ideas, right? Those people, those foreigners, so to speak, that's the mindset of Pharaoh in this case. And that's the mindset that a lot of people have today. There's certain work that we do, and then there's work that those people do. And that's, that's Pharaoh. Be careful and be mindful of that. When you encounter that in your life, that is the mindset of Pharaoh. We should always oppose it, all right? So, but this is the idea. Those we, we've lost their services, we've lost our workforce, we've got to go get them back. Completely disregarding the fact that their country lies in ruins because of the plagues that we've just read about. The greed and the desire for power over another, the desire for exploitation of workers, the desire for a life of, of comfort and ease at the expense of hardworking people, overtook the realization that they had just almost lost their entire country because of these people. The power
power of greed and the power of that desire. And so they go, they says, uh, what have we done? We let the Israelites go, we've lost our services. Verse six, so he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. This is making a point. Chariots, at this point in the world history, chariots are, I don't know my military too well, but whatever the best of the best military stuff is right now, like F-35s or whatever, um, think about that when you think about chariots. Chariots were game changers in the ancient world. Chariots meant that you could have the speed of a cavalry with the precision of an archer who was just shooting and not worrying about riding. Chariots meant that you could overtake and crush enemy lines. Chariots were what allowed Egypt to be the dominant power in the world at this time. So the fact that he takes his 600 best and all the rest of the chariots, it's like Pharaoh's taking all of his forces, everything. He's emptying the camp and pursuing Israel with the best high-tech weaponry. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Remember, they were marching out like a marching out in orderly procession. They were going, they were free, so they thought. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pihah Rov, opposite of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. It's the right response. Now they give the wrong response. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Here we're introduced to what's going to be a pattern in Israel's uh, experience in the wilderness. They realize they're marching out boldly. They're marching out triumphantly. That phrase, marching out boldly, literally in Hebrew is marching out with uplifted hand. It means like, like I'm doing this and I don't care who sees me. It's the phrase used when it talks about sins committed with a high hand. It's that kind of, that's the same phrase. It says, I'm sinning and I don't care who sees me. Well, they're marching out boldly. They're going out, they're all proud until they see Pharaoh and the chariots. And then all of a sudden, the God who seems so close, he's right there in front of them, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, right? All of a sudden seems far away. And the Pharaoh who they've left, who's been humbled and humiliated 10 times by the same God now seems much more real and much more of a threat. All of their faith seems to evaporate in the face of real spears, real swords, real chariots. It's easy to sing praises in church. It's easy to sing praises when you're at some conference, some Christian conference, or you're around a bunch of Christians. But when you're in the midst of where your faith matters, when you're tempted by the person in your office, when you're faced with a decision that means you are going to have to take a pay cut, when you're tempted by someone who's being demanding of you something that you know is going to make your life less comfortable, in the face of real stuff, that's when our faith is put to the test. That's when we realize, do we really trust them to build our father full of fire? Or are we more scared of Pharaoh to what? So this is what they see. This is their response. And it's ironic. They're, they're willing to return to the familiar suffering rather than face the uncertainty of freedom. 
And that in and of itself is a whole sermon series, you know? The, 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 the freedom and the uncertainty that comes with it is scarier sometimes than the 400 years of slavery and oppression and misery that we're used to. You know, some people are so used to their pain and misery that freedom from that is actually scary. Some people get become so comfortable with their pain and they don't even know what to do if they don't have something to complain about. Like I have relatives like that. If, something, if they don't have something to complain about, they're not happy. It's like that. There's, it's easy to get into that mindset. Uh, but God's not going to have it in this case. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. If you're a Bible highlighter or underliner, you can underline that word because it's not what it is, deliverance. But the word is Yeshua, salvation. It's the word that Jesus' name comes from. You are about to see the salvation of the Lord. There's a reason the Exodus is the paradigm for salvation in the New Testament. It is the paradigm for salvation. It's used in all the Gospels. It's used in the letters of the Apostles. And it's very much used in Revelation. This image of salvation being in a spiritual level like what happened here on the shore of the sea between Israel and Pharaoh. So uh, stand firm and you will see the salvation that the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. In other words, be quiet. Stop complaining. Let this giant pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that you seem to have forgotten do what he has promised to do. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. In other words, God's like, I'm not stopping just because there's water in front of us. Tell them to keep going. Don't panic. This is all part of the plan. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden. And this is, the NIV obscures this. In Hebrew, this is an emphatic I. Literally in Hebrew it says, and behold I, I myself will. And God's only ever used this formula two other times so far in the Bible. And they're both in the context of the flood, Genesis 6 and Genesis 9. When he's got to say, I will emphatically do something. Both in context of water judgments. Um, God's saying, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Horsemen, by the way, is, is that mean riders? It means the people uh, driving the chariots, the charioteers or something like that. It's, it's not like, anyway, <clears throat> that's what's going to talk about in the next chapter as well. So, verse 19, then... The angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, this is the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, right here is described as the angel of God. Angel just means messenger. Uh, angels in the scripture don't have wings, by the way. Cherubim have wings, seraphim much later in Isaiah, but in the vast instances of scripture, angels don't have wings, they're not fat babies. So get those images out of your mind. No fat babies, no wings, no halos, and people don't become angels when they die. This is all pop cartoon theology that Christians need to just do away with once and for all. It's unbiblical. Angel just means messenger. It means something of God, an agent of God that's going to do God's bidding in a situation. 
And we've already seen that sometimes that angel can in fact be God himself when it's the angel of the Lord. If you don't know what I'm talking about, catch up on the videos. Uh, the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The phrase dry land is not the normal phrase dry ground that's been used throughout Genesis. Um, it's actually, it's a Hebrew word, karabah, and it means like wasteland, or uh, it, it's kind of, it comes from the word for sword, and it's kind of like the, the wasteland left after the sword has done its thing, a uh, battlefield, or something like that. The Lord turns it into that. That's the dry ground. And it's kind of, it's important because later the biblical authors are going to look back on this event and they're going to talk about that when the Lord split the sea. And sometimes the prophets later, way later in Israel's history, they'll talk about this moment as when God split the head of the chaos serpent. Because remember, in ancient Near East mythology, we talked about this in Genesis, the sea represented all things that were scary, hostile, chaotic, evil. It was the source of the demonic. It was the source of uncertainty. It was the source of fear. The sea represents chaotic, demonic evil in the minds of most of the biblical authors. That's why in Revelation, John sees a vision and it says, behold, there was no more sea. Not because John doesn't like snorkeling, but because the sea represents the chaos and the evil. When Jesus cast the demons into the pigs, where did they run? To the sea. Exactly. When God was separating the waters at the beginning, what did he do? He separated the sea. That's a direct shot at the Babylonian mythology where the Babylonian god Marduk slayed the chaos sea serpent, Tiamat, and used her body to create the heavens and the earth, the carcass that he split in half. Genesis is using those motifs and saying, no, 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 this is what's really going on. This is what's really happening. God is defeating these chaotic, evil forces that all these cultures fear. When he did it, it was when he freed his people from slavery. That's the real victory over the chaos evil. That's the real victory of God over the forces of darkness, is in his liberation of his people from slavery. So all of this is circulating. There's so many themes of biblical theology that are running through this chapter. It's important if you pick up on and note the, the terms that are used elsewhere. So, uh, where do we stop? Strong east wind turned it into the wasteland. The waters were divided. That's creation language. That harkens back to Genesis uh, day 2. 22, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That's an image, by the way, of protection. Walls are obviously for protection. Um, chariots, the way chariot battles would work, chariots were so feared because chariot armies could outflank armies. They could go around and attack from both sides. In this case, though, Israel has pillar of fire behind them. Walls of water on both sides of them are completely safe. All that lies ahead of them is freedom. So God is saving them through these elements of creation that are so feared by the ancient world. So, verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. 
during the last watch of the night, which is 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off. NIV says come off. The Hebrew doesn't say come off. The Hebrew says he made the wheels turn. And uh, some translations say jam or cloth or something like that. I don't know where NIV gets come off from. Uh, but it's he made the wheels either sunk in the mud or the wheels turned or broke or something like that. But anyway, they got, the, the, their wheels were jacked up. Uh, so that they had difficulty in driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. It's ironic. They were all wanting to get close to the Israelites and overtake the Israelites. And now all of a sudden they want to get away from them. Why? Because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The last thing the Egyptians say, the last thing on their lips is an acknowledgement of the power of God and the realization that they were on the wrong side. The last thing that they say before they die. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The question is, do you do it in freedom as you're going out or do you do it as the walls and water of the judgment are closing in? This is another theme that this chapter deals with. Everyone's going to praise God eventually. The question is, we do it willingly or unwillingly. And for the Egyptians, it was most definitely unwillingly. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariot horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved. This is where that term saved comes from, by the way. When your Baptist friends ask you, have you been saved? This is where it's coming from. This is the language that salvation uh, was adopted from from the beginning. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. NIV says hands, but it's the same, hand or power, translated either way. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great hand, and here it translates it as power, which is kind of weird, but it's the same word. When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses as his servant. God's victory brought about not just them fearing God, but also realizing, hey, this guy Moses, God actually sent him. We've been writing his case this whole time. You know, we've been grumbling against him, we've been complaining, we doubted him when he first appeared, we doubted him when the plagues started happening or when the work increased before the plagues. But now they realize Moses is part of this deal. God is, is, he is the instrument that God has chosen to use. And so their fear of God translated also into a respect and reverence for Moses, which is a turning point. Now, it's not going to be permanent. They're going to turn back. There's a lot of turning and turning back among the Israelites. But this section, this chapter, is the climax of the, the, um, the victory. There's, there's a neat parallel between Old Testament and New Testament. That's why I love Old Testament so much, because it brings out so much in the New Testament. Um, think about the Passover, which was the previous section, and the crossing of the sea. At Passover is when God gave the initial deliverance. He declared, these are the people I'm going to redeem. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. 
right? But it wasn't until the Red Sea that they were truly delivered into that freedom. There was Passover which proclaimed the freedom and brought it about in first stage, but then the true deliverance didn't come until Pharaoh himself was destroyed at the Red Sea crossing. They had to go through the water for that thing to be actualized in their life. So it's the parallel in the New Testament is pretty strong as well. Think about the New Testament version of Passover. What is it? The Lord's Supper. The night Jesus was betrayed. He declared their freedom on the cross. He achieved that freedom. The blood of the Lamb was shed. The people had the means of salvation, God's people to be saved. But it wasn't complete until he rose from the grave and sent his spirit. And they were baptized in the spirit. Until people go through the waters, they don't truly leave that life behind them. They don't, they don't actualize the salvation that was freely given. The other thing I like about this in the Old Testament section is it illustrates, it gives us a way to think about salvation that gets us past this whole Calvin and Arminian squabbles that Christians get into. Did God predestine or did we have a part to play in it? Is God sovereign and he does all the work or do we do some of the work in our salvation? It's a dumb question because look at the paradigm for salvation in Israel. Could any Israelite standing at the shore of the Red Sea, looking back at the army's corpses floating in there, could any of them say, wow, look what we did to save ourselves? No. They would be ridiculous to make that brat. They said our salvation was entirely a work of God. He gets all the glory for this Red Sea thing. No Israelite contributed to the Red Sea party at all. It was 100% a gift of God, right? right? Right. God is sovereign. So that's where my Calvinist friends get it right. Where they get it wrong is how did the Israelites, what were they told to do once that sea was parted? Walk. If they stood there on the other side of the sea or stood there in the middle and just said, drag me, Lord. It's all your grace. I don't want to be able to turn around and brag later. Right? Then they would have drowned with the Egyptians. They had to actualize that salvation, not earn it. They didn't contribute to their salvation. They had to receive it by actually doing something. And that's a scandal to some Protestants because they think, oh, if we do anything, we can brag about it and all of our theology is lost and Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Nonsense. It's always been that way in the Hebrew mindset. Salvation is entirely an act of God, but it requires us to accept and actualize what he has already given. So it's none of this works versus grace or any of the things that people get all up in arms about. It's both and. There's the call to walk across the dry ground, but it's dry ground that God himself entirely did that humans contributed nothing to bringing about. So don't get caught up in all of the, the squabbles that Christians on the blogosphere write articles back and forth and decide with their favorite theologians on it and whole denominations are structured around their doctrines of grace and free will and all this stuff. Hold them together. Do what Scripture does. Scripture holds them together so we can hold them together as well. Um, the last thing that's worth noting as we end is there's debate among uh, some scholars, skeptical scholars, skeptics say, well, there's no evidence that this happened. And, you know, if you look at these places in Egypt where the chariots were supposed to have drowned and everything, there's no evidence of it there. And it's because, like, if you look in the back of your Bibles, if you have study Bibles, it always shows the route of the Exodus. And at this point in the video, I'm going to put a graphic right here 
so you can see what I'm talking about. So go home and watch that. But it always shows the Exodus crossing. Like this is top, this is the Sinai Peninsula, and it shows that the Israelites were like wandering around up here in Egypt, and then they crossed like some lakes or something. And they get it because the name of Red Sea in Hebrew is literally Yam Suf, it means Sea of Reeds and like marsh. And so they say, oh, it was really the Sea of Reeds, not the Red Sea. It was really this marsh that they. Well, Pharaoh's armies aren't going to drown in a marsh. One and two, it was after they left Egypt. They left Egypt and then turned back and wandered in the wilderness. And it says that they encamped by the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds, but the only other time the Bible uses that phrase, Yam Suf, Sea of Reeds, to describe a location, is when it describes where Solomon kept his fleet of ships. You can't keep a fleet of ships in a marshy lake. Solomon kept his fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is here on this side of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. Not this side over here, not the Gulf of uh, Suez, Aqaba. This side of the Red Sea. This is where Yom Suf is. This is where Solomon kept his fleet. And this is where Israelite uh, made the crossing. Every study Bible that you've got, they'll put question marks by all the locations because none of these are known. But if you just read the text of Scripture, it tells us what's going on and where it's taking place. So the reason that people doubt the Exodus is because they're looking for all this evidence over here. When in fact, it's all over here. And there's a great documentary, uh, The Exodus Revealed. Check it out on, I think, on Netflix or Amazon, or you may have to order it. But The Exodus Revealed, it's a great um, documentary that gives all of the evidence for the Exodus if you look for it in the right place, which is where the Bible says it was. Um, so anyway, we're out of time. Come back next week. We're going to look at how Israel now celebrates this event in the first hymn, the first full-length worship song, the first David Crowder set in the Bible is going to be Genesis 15. It's going to be the Song of Moses, the Song of Miriam. So come back and see how they look back on and how they characterize this experience before moving forward. Um, last thing is a couple of housekeeping notes. For those of you that are schedule-oriented and like to know dates and things, summer's coming up, which is time when I travel. I do itinerant speaking and teaching. There's going to be two dates when I'm gone. Uh, in case you're wondering, June 9th I'm going to be gone and July 14th. Going to be going. I'll try to arrange somebody to speak here, guest speaker, but if for some reason that falls through, like it happened last time and the guest speaker didn't show up, just eat and read the Bible together and do what Christians do, just be Christians, <laughs> sharing a meal. Um, finally, this ministry, Jeff Conway hosts this. He, he supplies all of the food. And he's able to do that because God has blessed him through his ownership of Ruth's and through all the things he's given him and everything like that. Uh, I supply the teaching, and the way I do it, I don't have a Ruth's Chris to pay, is uh, I have people that support my ministry, Psychodojo. And I've lost a few in the past weeks, and with summer coming up and speaking engagements and taking a dip, I could really, you know, close mouths don't get fed, so let me open the mouth right. I could really use some more monthly supporters. I have $10 a month supporters, $25 a month supporters, $50 up to $100. But there's a thing on my website, you can click, you can automatically support, it goes through PayPal. Really helps me out uh, because we want to keep all of this free for you guys. So think about that, pray about it. If you're enjoying this, whether on video or here in person, then maybe think about how you can help keep it going um, by not muzzling the ox. Donations here. Yes, every week we this is food is free. We ask that you please leave a donation, leave what you think it's worth. 
kitchen staff. It all goes to them, none of it goes to me, none of it goes to Jeff. Uh, sometimes the giving is a little low for the quality of the meal that they provide. So there's your guilt trip for the day. Have a great week. Come back next week. Bring your friends and coworkers, and we'll see you there.